We're in the second week of an eight-week series on Jesus' parables. Now, for those who weren't here last week, I want to start with just a brief background on the parables. They are one of the most distinct aspects of Jesus' ministry. Instead of merely giving people facts about God, Jesus liked to tell stories. Now, stories have certain advantages over facts. First of all, stories are limitless. Facts are as true as they are true, but the meaning of stories goes on forever. You know, just one example, there's a story called the parable of the prodigal son, which we're actually going to look at in a few weeks. It's a very important parable to me, and I find that I come back to that parable all the time in my own mind, and what I've noticed is that over the years, it's meant different things to me. And it seems like every time I go back to it, I learn more about myself and about God, and I think that I'll never reach the point at which I could ever say that I understand that story completely, because there is no limit to its meaning. Now, of course, for people who like facts, stories can be frustrating, because they are slippery. You have to be okay with ambiguity. You have to be okay with the limits of your own understanding, and this is why a lot of people in Jesus' own time were very frustrated with him, People who were literal-minded, people who tended to be conservative, people who didn't color outside the lines, people who liked to see things in black and white only, didn't like Jesus' stories very much, and often he got in trouble because of it. But there's another reason why Jesus' stories offended people, and it's because they were often subversive. They presented people with a different way of thinking about God. We saw this last week when Jesus portrays God as kind of a dunce farmer who's throwing seeds in all of these places where he should know better that they won't grow. He's throwing seeds in barren paths and rocky soil and in thorn bushes. And people are asking, how stupid is this farmer? But of course, if you think about this story, there's tremendous meaning in it because it means that God is trying to reach us in our own barren lives. But it is subversive. It challenges conventional ways of thinking about God. Now, I think that a lot of times we've lost that sense of scandal because we don't understand the cultural context in which these stories were told. And so that's something that we're trying to do in this series is we're trying to step into Jesus' world in order to be changed by his stories like people in the first century were changed by them. So that's the goal again today. We're looking today at Jesus' parable of the mustard seed. It's a very short parable, two sentences. Matthew 13, 31 to 32. Here it is. Jesus put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts on this, your holy word, be acceptable in your sight and life-giving to us and through us as your people. Amen. For the second straight week, I noticed that no one laughed at this story. 
And yet this story, just like the one last week, is hilarious. If you were an ancient person hearing this parable, you would probably be laughing right now. And I think I mentioned last week that one of my lifelong goals in ministry is to help people understand just how funny Jesus was. He used humor all the time, but just like the best stand-up comics, his humor always had a deeper point. It always led to a deeper truth. You laugh, but then you think. So we have this story about a farmer who plants a mustard seed. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It's a tiny seed, but it grows and grows, and it gets so big that it becomes a tree that provides shelter for the birds of the air. That's the whole story. Farmer, seed, tree. You're still not laughing. All right, to understand why this story is so funny, we're going to need to know a few facts. Two things in particular, all right? Number one, the mustard seed, the mustard plant, I should say, was considered a weed. It was undesirable. People did not want it in their gardens. And number two, mustard plants were not trees. They were shrubs. They were bushes. They were small and ugly. No bird in the history of the world has ever made a nest in a mustard shrub because it's not substantial enough to support the weight. And so we have two very subversive ideas here. Number one, the kingdom of God, the most sacred reality there is, is like a weed? An unwanted invasive species? And number two, the kingdom of God is like an ugly little bush? What kind of a kingdom is this? All right, that's why people were laughing. It's also, frankly, a little offensive, right? But then it makes you think. So let's, let's think about this story together. As I said last week, there are layers to Jesus' parables. Let's start with the outer layer, which is that the fact that this story comments on a well-known idea in the Hebrew Bible. You see, the Hebrew Bible would often describe Israel as a great towering tree. And so we find in the book of Ezekiel a description of Israel as a cedar of Lebanon, the grandest tree in the Middle East. This is what Ezekiel says. It towers high above other trees of the field. Its boughs grew large, its branches long. And then he says this, all the birds of the air made their nests on its branches and in its shade all great nations lived. Sound familiar? That's exactly what Jesus says about the mustard plant. All the birds of the air will nest in its branches. And so he is intentionally commenting on passages like this from the Hebrew Bible. Now, unlike we who are rather biblically illiterate, his audience would have immediately caught this illusion. And this is what made it funny. They had grown up hearing that Israel was like a giant strong, towering tree. And then they hear this story about God's kingdom being like a mustard bush. That's funny, Jesus. That's a good one. But if they stop to think about it, a whole world of meaning would open for them. Because Jesus is critiquing human power and ambition. This idea that Israel is a great tree, taller than the other trees 
of the field is a political vision. We are taller than you. We are greater than you. We are stronger than you. You will live in the shadow of our branches. Well, of course, all nations said things like that. Rome said things like that. The Greeks said things like that. The Assyrians said things like that because all nations were ambitious like that. They still are if you look around the world. But along comes Jesus who says the kingdom of heaven is not like that. It's different than the ambitions of people. The kingdom of God is a seed that is almost invisible. A mustard seed is so small that if you held it in your hand, you would have to strain your eyes to see it. And then it grows into a weed that nobody wants. And what's worse is that it spreads quickly. It's invasive. It gets into your life when it wasn't even invited there, when you don't even want it because you'd rather have human power. There was a Roman uh, writer and naturalist named Pliny the Elder who cataloged ancient plants, and this is what he said about the mustard plant in the first century. It grows wild, and when it has been sown, it is scarcely possible to get rid of it. In other words, it's resilient. It grows when no one is watching, while other people are clamoring for power. It's content to remain hidden, but it's still growing. And once it's in your garden, it's damn near impossible to get rid of it. Because once you have known the love and mercy of God, it changes your life forever. It has taken root within you and it grows not of your power, of God's power. Let me try to put this into perspective. I grew up in rural Mississippi and I was surrounded by the kudzu vine. I'm sure some of you know what kudzu is. It is a vine that some people thought it would be a good idea to bring it over from Asia a long time ago. They thought it might help with soil erosion. And then it developed a life of its own. It took over so quickly and other plants just couldn't compete with it. Estimates, uh, estimates are that it can grow up to 12 inches in a single day. And in a year it can spread over 100,000 acres. It is now virtually everywhere in the southern United States. I can vividly remember as a child just seeing landscapes that were completely kudzu. There's a photo on the cover of your bulletin that shows one of these landscapes. I put a bus in the photo, or I found a photo with a bus, just to kind of give you some perspective on how quickly this vine spreads. Basically, nothing can stop it. And now nobody wants it. There are endless government programs to try to get rid of kudzu, but it's a losing battle because kudzu is so resilient, just like the gospel. Everywhere it's been introduced, it takes over, not through official decree, but through the word of mouth of people who are desperate for God's healing. Christianity in its first several hundred years was an underground movement. Now, people criticize Christianity now because in the West, it eventually became a political power. It became like a great tree towering over everything else. But this was always a corruption of its original message because the original message is that the kingdom of God is like a weed. And wherever the gospel is honestly preached, it still is subversive. It's always bad news for people with power, and it's always good news for people without it. It's always bad news for the proud, and it's always good news for the humble. 
Now, we in the West have a very distorted view. We are a very wealthy nation that is becoming more and more secular. There is a study that just came out last week that said that the number of Americans who report believing in God is at the lowest level ever recorded. And so we may think, well, I guess the world at large is simply becoming less religious. But that's actually not true. What the statistics actually say is that the world is becoming more religious just not in the West. Christianity is spreading much more quickly than atheism in all of the poor areas of the world, especially Africa and Asia. Over there, it's spreading like kudzu. It's spreading like wild mustard. Why is it spreading among people who are poor and desperate? Because the gospel always gives hope to people without power. It tells people the truth that they are God's children and and that Christ died for them. It gives them the power of the gospel. Leslie Newbigin, the great British minister who spent decades in India, famously said that the newest mission field in the world is the West. Isn't that interesting? The place where Christianity once thrived? That now we in the West are the ones in need of evangelizing. We need faithful ministers from the third world to come here and tell us about the reality of God's love. Why have we forgotten that reality? I think it's because we've become so comfortable. We're so far removed from the messy realities of life that we've forgotten that we need God. It's not that God's not there. It's just that we're looking in the wrong place for him. You're looking up expecting a great tree when you should be looking down at the weeds. You're looking at wealth when you should be looking at poverty. You're looking at fame when you should be looking at humility. You're looking at human power when you should be looking at human weakness. After all, who is closer to God, a person with great comfort or a person who has just lost everything? So why then do we spend so much time chasing comfort? You're looking for a Messiah who was born in a castle, not the actual one who was born in a feeding trough. You're looking for a Messiah who has authority and wealth, not the the actual one who was born into poverty and scandal. You're looking for a Messiah who judges sinners, not the actual one who welcomed them. You're looking for a Messiah who will overthrow the Roman Empire, not the actual one who was murdered by it. You're looking for a God who is so obvious and powerful that he's like a tall tree, not the one who is hidden. Until you stop what you were doing and you look at those rejected places in the world that are almost like weeds. You're looking for a God who will change things in the future, not the one who is already here, hidden in plain sight. Can you see what Jesus was getting at with this funny little two-sentence story? That God is always counterintuitive He's always countercultural, and that it has to be this way because, after all, salvation belongs to him, not us. If we could control it, it wouldn't be salvation. It would be something that we do, but you can't control the mustard plant. It grows of its own power. Let me offer an example of what I think this looks like in practice. There's a group home in Nashville called Thistle Farm. I mentioned them once in another sermon. It's run by an Episcopal priest named Rebecca Stevens, and this home in Nashville helps women who are trying to escape lives of prostitution. Every single woman in this 
in this group home without exception has been raped. Virtually every woman who comes to this group home is addicted to drugs, and virtually all of these women struggle with feelings of hopelessness and worthless, worthlessness. Now, one of the, I think, most impressive things about this program is that it's totally self-sustaining. It receives zero government funding. The way that it supports itself is that the women in this program make beauty products from the thistle plant. The thistle plant is a weed. It's an unwanted plant. It's a tough, prickly plant that most people would never want to see in their gardens. But what these women, these former prostitutes do, is they take this tough, unwanted plant and they make something soft and helpful out of it. Lotion and body wash and candles. The women in this program are themselves like the thistle plant. They are unwanted. They are rejected. They are tough. And when they come into the program, they're very prickly. In fact, the thistle plant thrives in the very alleyways where these women once lived and worked. And yet this prickly weed, once a year, sprouts the most beautiful purple flower. In making beauty products, these women are doing to this plant the very thing that God is doing to them, transforming them, taking something tough and angry and showing its beauty. The women of Thistle Farm published a book of reflections, and I would like to read something to you that they wrote. This chapter is called Consider the Thistle. The thistle blooms in streets and alleys where women walk and sleep. We spend a lot of time considering the thistle, its rough exterior, its soft and regal center, its capacity to break through concrete to blossom. In a world that names them weeds, we taste the riches of thistles and savor their beauty. We are thistle farmers. The world is our farm, and we harvest where other people do not want to travel. And then the writer talks about a particular road in Nashville where prostitutes go to pick up clients, and this is what she writes. I know that road all too well. I lived there in abandoned sheds and lots. The smell of urine was everywhere. I kept all my worldly belongings in garbage bags. I spent hours looking for restaurants where I could wash my body off. I spent days going to thrift stores looking for free clothing. All of this so that I could hang out at the gas station to panhandle or catch a trick, whichever came first. I had no shoes, no good clothes, nowhere to sleep, no food to eat. And yet I am a beautiful, I am, and yet I am beautiful and worthy of every good thing. The kingdom of God is like a weed. It's so tiny that it's invisible. People don't even notice it. But it grows into a tree that provides shelter for all of creation. Can you see it? Let us end in prayer. God, we pray that you would break open our hearts as you break open seeds so that your life might grow within us. 
draw our eyes toward those places that we tend to reject and avoid, knowing that in human weakness, including the weakness of our own lives, that this is where your strength is working to heal us from the inside out. In Christ we pray, amen.